Why are police photographing our license plates? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show where Reasonable Voices come to advocate reasonable positions for our nation. Today our guest is Delegate Marcus B. Simon, who is the Delegate of Virginia's 53rd District, which is in part uh, Fairfax County. And and welcome, by the way, um, Delegate Marcus Simon. How are you this day? Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I'm very good today. I'm having a great day. Sounds great. You sound great. Tell us, what does the 53rd District of Virginia comprise geographically? compact district in uh, eastern Fairfax County and the city of Falls Church in Virginia. So we border Arlington County uh, to the east and we go out and we cover the city of Falls Church in Maryfield. We're just south of Tyson's Corner, Virginia. So that gives some of your listeners an idea of where the district is. So when I moved uh, back here from New York City and lived in McLean, Virginia, I was a constituent? Close. You were you were probably about one or two precincts away from my oh. district. Oh well, I'm sorry. Well, we caught up now. Let, let's tell them a little more about you. You were elected to the House of Delegates in 2013. You also are well into your second term of representing the 53rd House District, which is grand. And you currently serve on the House Committee on Militia, Police, and Public Safety. Those all interest me. And the House Committee on Science and Technology which is uh, might have a little climate change slant to it, but, but we'll press on for now. Before all of this, though, Delegate Simon chaired the board of the McLean Chamber of Commerce and served on the Fairfax County Ad Hoc Police Practices Review Committee. All that to say, it seems like Marcus Simon has a focus on protecting we the people. And that might seem like, well, don't they all? Well, I don't know. But I'll start off with, here's a question. Marcus, may I call you Marcus, by the way? Absolutely, please do. Are our prisons, and thank you, but are our prisons being used as mental health institutions? You know, as a matter of fact, they are. Uh, in Virginia in particular, uh, well, actually across the country, I mean, we have more, um, our largest mental health facility as a practical matter 
are our jails and our state prisons and our regional prisons here in Virginia. And they're not properly equipped, unfortunately, uh, and, and the folks that staff them don't receive the training that they need to deal with the, the folks that are living with mental health, mental health issues and mental illness uh, that reside in those jails. So that's one of the things that I've been trying hard to, to work on in my work on the the Police Practices Commission here in Fairfax County and my work in the General Assembly is two things. You know, one is what can we do to prevent people living with mental illness from winding up in jail or prison? That's not where they belong. They, they, they need treatment, and they're not criminals in the sense that they don't, they, the danger that they pose doesn't come from criminality. It comes from a lack of, of treatment and a lack of recognition of their symptoms and their, and their underlying disease. So the best way to, to, to deal with that situation would be to identify folks early and, and divert them away from the criminal justice system and into the, the healthcare system. And then for those that inevitably end up uh, in jail or prison, uh, making sure that the folks that work there uh, have the right training and the right resources to properly address the, the, the mental health challenges of having prisoners like that. Uh, I'm glad to hear that, and I know, uh, of course, you as, as as well as I, any Virginia and anyone who cares about law and order and safety of the mentally ill, uh, since the tr- family tragedy of Senator Creed Deeds, who's a state senator in Virginia, uh, have we done better in financing the need for beds when uh, the mentally ill are brought into law enforcement? Have we done better in training police on how to recognize the difference? It's not an easy thing, uh, you know, so it can't just be the responsibility of the police, but they certainly need training in this area. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's like the old carnival game whack-a-mole where you solve one problem and another one pops up. Yes. Um, and, and with the, the credits uh, issue was a problem with uh, intake. You yes. Know, when we have somebody suffering from a mental health crisis, you know, his son, they, they didn't have a bed for him and they sent him home yes. uh, without treatment. And so we've opened up the front door better in response to that. We've given more money and more resources to identifying bed space and getting people in the front door. Uh, the problem is that uh, we haven't allocated the resources inside the hospitals and we haven't created a better exit door for folks that once they get, once they're through the hospital, and there's there's no way to step down their treatment. And so we don't have transitional facilities. We, we don't have funds for transitional facilities to get people from that really intensive level of mental health treatment to some sort of transition where they can get back into the community. Uh, so we, we open the door for emergency cases like that, but then as a result of not having a bachelor, the beds fill up, and then when you get someone like Jermichael Mitchell at Hampton Roads, who was referred by the courts for a competency hearing, he wasted away for four months in the regional jail, yes. and eventually died waiting for bed space because we we said, well, we're going to prioritize these emergency cases and we're not going to prioritize the court referrals. And so if you don't actually devote the resources, you don't, if you can't take it from one and take it from another, you really have to add value um, and add resources if we're going to address this problem. And I know you fought for this and spoke to this on the floor of the Richmond Assembly in the House of Delegates. And I don't know, it sounded like to me technicalities of tap dancing were against you there, but... Um, I, I just want to say, as someone who lives in Virginia now, I truly appreciate what you've already done and what you continue to do on this, because the, the gentleman you mentioned who died in prison waiting for this assistance, he was like 27, is that correct? Right, he was a young man in 
in his yeah. 20s. He was healthy, physically healthy when he went in, and was arrested for what we commonly see as, as for people suffering from mental illness for trespassing and shoplifting at a 7-Eleven. And he was at a 7-Eleven. He didn't have any place to go. He wouldn't leave. The shopkeeper, understandably, was upset, wanted him off the premises, and called the police. I mean, that's what people do. They don't know who else to call. We yes. don't have resources in the community. So when you don't know what to do, you call the police. Uh, and that's how he entered into the criminal justice system and then unfortunately never left. Now, you know, the governor's tried to put more resources for mental health, triage for mental health, yes. uh, for recognition of these things uh, to avoid those sorts of problems. And that was what the House Republicans were trying to take out of the budget when I spoke on the floor. And I wanted to remind them why that money was there, mm-hmm. uh, that it wasn't. You know, it wasn't just a feel-good measure. That the real Virginians' lives are at stake yes. uh, over this. And while we lost the day on the floor there, you know, the good news is that in, 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 I think I was heard because the conference report between the House and the Senate versions of the budget did restore a lot of the funding that I was looking for oh, uh, in the governor's budget. Excellent. Well, you know, uh, we're talking mental illness and prisons, and I, I'm not far from that in my mind is gun violence and the prevention of gun violence. I all too often don't even hear the words mental illness unless someone has shot someone. Uh, what are your feelings about and how do we prevent gun violence? Or any violence, rape, spousal uh, uh, abuse, but, but gun violence seems to be uh, seizing our, it's like um, it's the default way of solving problems. Gee, I'm sorry I just said that, but what do you think, uh, uh, Marcus? The, um, you know, the only time you can be here folks on the other side of the aisle concerned about mental health is when it's a choice between you know, increasing mental health, blaming someone's mental health or, or blaming the, the, the easy accessibility of firearms. The fact is that you know, it, we know in a situation like a domestic violence situation, the presence of a firearm in the household increases the likelihood of a fatality by 500%. Yes. Um, you know, five times more likely to be a fatality involved if somebody anybody in that household has access to the firearms. So you know, we've tried to take some steps to make it easier to remove firearms from situations where somebody's requested a, pro- a protective order. You know, the, the governor uh, and the NRA were able to compromise on a, on a provision that in Virginia now says that if there's a permanent protective order issued by a judge, that the person subject to the protective order has to surrender their firearms within 24 hours. You know, the problem with that is to get the permanent protective order to begin with takes three or four days. Mm. So we're really talking about five or six days that that firearm's still in the house. Oh, and unfortunately, when we see you know things really escalate and, and get and spiral out of control, yeah. uh, but so I think we can work on expanding that. I think that's a good start. And then you know we need to have background checks on every single person who purchases a firearm yes. in Virginia. You know, gun owners agree with that. You know, most people, you know, regardless of your political affiliation, believe that that's the case. We ought to keep firearms away from dangerous people. Unfortunately, the Virginia General Assembly and the House of Delegates in particular got the one place where that's not a majority opinion. But we need to have background checks at gun shows, on Internet sales. Anytime a firearm changes hands, there ought to be a background check done. We have access to information. We ought to look at it and see if the person who's going to take possession of that firearm is, is in a position to, to safely handle it. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, you, you were talking about Governor Terry McAuliffe, yes, with his new uh, compromise with the NRA? Yes. Uh, yes. 
In, in, re, in our recent history and previous administration of both federal and state level, we have had to deal with the Supreme Court uh, sanctioning or, or saying the Citizens United was an okay thing. It certainly has had a financial impact on our entire electoral process, I think. And what can we do to address uh, campaign finance and, what, and the ethics of it, for heaven's sake? I mean, what, what do you think? Virginia is a real free-for-all kind of a state, and it's something I've been working on since I first got to Richmond and really began to understand the system. For just a second, I mean, the system in Virginia is we can take unlimited campaign contributions from any source. Yes. For the only restrictions, we can't do it during the the 60 days that we're actually in session. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you've got corporations, you've got tax, you've got lobbyists, you've got attorneys. Anybody who's got business before the legislature writes checks for thousands and tens of thousands of dollars mm. to, uh, to the legislators that are going to decide the fate of their industry. So, for instance, we've got the uh, payday lending industry, or the, actually, the car title. These yes. were payday lenders who converted to car title. But these same-day, short-term, super high-interest predatory lending facilities, and they're financing the campaigns of the people that sit on the committees that are supposed to decide you know, the future of that industry here in Virginia. So I've introduced some bills uh, in an effort to try and rein some of that in. Yeah, I passed. I introduced a bill to, to so you couldn't have campaign contributions from corporations in mm-hmm. Virginia. Even before Citizens United here in Virginia, you know, there was no limitation on the source. I've, I've tried to put in some limits on, most importantly, I guess, what's really sticks out like a sore thumb in Virginia is that we can spend this unlimited amount of money that we can get from any source on anything we want. We don't actually have to spend it on campaigning, which, you know, means if I can take this money from anybody, spend it on anything I want, how is that different from a bribe? How exactly. Does it off? <laughs> so, uh, and Virginia is one of only three states that doesn't have a prohibition on converting campaign funds to personal use. So I've introduced that bill each year we're getting a little bit closer to, to getting that passed. But I think it's essential if you want folks to have believe that there's any integrity left in the process. Yes. Uh, they have to know that we're not all being bought off by whatever special interest has, in, has some business before the legislature. Once uh, Governor McAuliffe became governor, didn't he... Uh, I don't know what happened to this. I didn't follow it. Maybe that's what you were referring to. The He, he introduced the... Um, uh, there'd be a hundred dollar, I think it was, cap on what gifts uh, or monetary gifts could be received by a member of the Richmond Assembly. Am I remembering that incorrectly, or did that not? No, I guess there's, there's two different issues. There's the issue of campaign contributions, which are still unlimited and still unfettered. We have done a little bit better recently on this issue of gifts. Oh yes, yes. There was, there was a time when you know uh, Dominion Virginia Power could take a group of three legislators and fly us to the Masters in South Carolina and, or Georgia, wherever it is, and, and put us up in their tent and, and then fly us back on their private plane the same day. They, you know, it's a gift that's worth you know, tens of thousands of yes, dollars. Yes. And it was fine as long as we reported it. We have reined that piece of it in a little bit. Uh, so the governor has uh, first imposed on himself a $100 gift ban, and finally after two years the General Assembly agreed to limit ourselves as well to $100 per year cap mm-hmm. on gifts that we receive from people that have business before the General Assembly. It took us a while to get there. We started with just tangible gifts, not intangible gifts. Mm. Uh, but 
you know, things like tickets and experiences, vacations would be considered intangible. So we, we, we added that a year later. We still have exceptions, though, that kind of eat up the rule. For instance, there's an exception for gifts for tickets to widely attended events. Mm. Which we all sort of thought meant, okay, so there's a reception at the, you know, at the Library of Virginia, and 60 or 70 people with an interest in Civil War history are going to show up. If we come to that event on, on, you know, for free, that's not something I think anybody minds, and it's a widely attended sort of a general assembly function we all go. Mm. Uh, it turns out that the ethics council that we established to sort of police these things uh, has a much broader definition of what a widely attended event is. They said you can actually accept tickets to a luxury suite at the Redskins game because the Redskins game is a widely attended event, widely attended by other football fans. So, you know, the, the exceptions to the rules in many cases have, have gutted the rule and really uh, kept it from really achieving, I think, what it was trying to do. Especially since the, everyone knows the Redskins uh, are trying to uh, build a stadium in Virginia. How do you feel about Dan Snyder? <laughs> well, I am, I am no, I'm a big fan of the team. I grew up rooting for them, and I enjoyed... The Super Bowl parades in the uh, 80s and, and 90s when I was a kid. But ever since he's taken over the team, uh, well, it's probably another issue. Let me put it this way. As far as politics goes, I don't think we ought to be spending any Virginia taxpayer dollars or providing tax incentives to try and lure the team I- into Virginia. If, if Dan Snyder wants to pay his own way into Virginia, if he gets a good deal on some land and some infrastructure and wants to pay for it himself, then by all means, let's help, you know, we'll, we'll welcome him. But uh, I, you know, we don't need to be providing tax breaks for billionaires. We can afford to provide the incentives to locate a, a, a football stadium. We could probably better spend that money on things like an earned income tax credit that will really help stimulate the economy and help people in need. You know, I agree, uh, Marcus. It uh, Every time I read about uh, uh, stadiums, first of all, the stadium is paid for in, in other states we're talking now. It's all over the country. The team decides to move someplace, the state uh, taxes pay for the stadium, and then they leave the game. Or, some, you know, it's just, uh, it's just as, as people near and dear to my soul would say who teach in the arts, the money you spend on sports and the stadiums, etc., as opposed to sharing some of it with the arts could, you know, build whole universities. But, all right, don't let me digress. We're, we're going to take a short break. This has been great. I'm talking to Delegate Marcus Simon, who represents the 53rd District in Virginia. And we've got a number of subjects yet to get to. We've talked about prisons and mental health. It's an issue everywhere. We've talked about ca- campaign finances and the ethics or lack of ethics involved in that. And, of course, the need to prevent gun violence with at least background checks. We will be right back. I promise you we're going to talk to Delegate Marcus Simon about, uh, well, the presidential campaign, why not, and student loans, and what's going on with the Virginia Supreme Court uh, reversing Governor McAuliffe. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Film Rental Discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. We were intrigued when we started hearing reports of an entirely original film that had those in the know talking. It had been seen at the 2014 issue of the Sundance Film Fest and was being described as the first Iranian vampire western. Hmm, interesting. 
A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night turns out to be exactly the kind of film we love to feature here at the Indie Film Minute. Beautifully shot in luminous black and white by an emerging Iranian-American filmmaker, its brilliant imagery hangs in our memory alongside the greatest of art. When the final credits roll, two thoughts dance through our heads. First, what a perfect ending. And second, we want more. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is a love story between a striving young man and a female vampire. It is set in a world of decadence and disaffected youth with stratification of wealth and cruelty between the exploiters and exploited. A once flourishing mankind has brought itself into decline and devastation. Yet strength remains in the heart of the hopeful. And here, one of those hopeful souls just happens to be a vampire. Dark, but brilliantly effervescent. A girl walks home alone at night. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, by the way, Marcello Rolando. Don't think I mentioned that in the last segment. I was so interested to get to Delegate Marcus Simon, who we're speaking to today. He represents the 53rd District in Virginia in the House of Delegates in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, probably knows good friends of mine like uh, uh, David Toscano and Mark Levine. You get to work with them, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, great guys, great, great, all of you. So, I promised in the end of the last segment that we would talk about the presidential campaign. I mean, everybody's got an opinion, and of course, only the Olympics has dared to interrupt the coverage on the campaigns. I always feel we've said too much, but we haven't said enough, so what are your thoughts, uh, Marcus? social media feed. I have yeah. people posi- posting positive things about the Olympics and not just uh, political rant. Exactly. Uh, but the reason I think that people are so uh, fired up about this election is that it's so so very, very important and, and there's so much at stake. You know, in Virginia, you know, I think even with the addition of Tim Kaine to the, to the ticket, making a Clinton-Kaine ticket, yes. uh, remains in play. And I think it would be a mistake for people to sort of write off Virginia and, and take it for granted, given what's you know, given what's how important it is and what's at stake here. Yeah. You know, Donald Trump really, we, we all sort of initially dismissed him as a as a joke, sort of a publicity stunt kind of campaign for his TV show or his hotels or something at the beginning. You know, nobody, I, don't, I think, you know, gave him a realistic chance of becoming the nominee, mm-hmm. uh, and and he surprised us all. And, and that's what happens if you take him too lightly. Exactly. Uh, you know, Virginia, you know, went for Barack Obama by you know, 150,000 votes the last time around, mm. which is not a lot given we have eight million people in the state. It's, exactly. it's, uh, you know, and it, 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 it's a very, very tight election, and Hillary needs to carry the state in pretty northern Virginia and Charlottesville and some of our more uh, blue enclaves uh, yes. by really strong, strong margins to offset some of the rest of the state. So, you know, I'm hoping that my fellow Virginians will make sure they get out there and work just as hard as we have the last two elections to keep Virginia blue. Mm. I've lived long enough to see Virginia go from deep red to purple, and now at least for uh, President Obama the last couple of elections, slightly blue, and, and I'd like to see it stay in the blue column. But as you say, it's Northern Virginia and Charlottesville, Virginia, that tend to deliver that blue clout. Not always are we able to do it consistently, so nothing can be taken for granted. If we all don't get out and help campaign 
and, and, and vote and help others to vote, even if it means driving them to the polls, you can predict that this could be a very unpredictable result. In my... Yeah, well, that's right. And, and you know, even in, in, say, you know, a place like where I live, like uh, Falls Church, Virginia, where in a presidential year you'll get like 70 or 75 percent turnout, that's 25 percent of the electorate that doesn't feel engaged enough to vote. I know. Uh, and, and, and those are those are the folks, those are sort of disaffected folks that, that Trump seems to appeal to. Yes. You know, those are folks that aren't typically engaged in politics at all, but might be enamored with his celebrity with that name recognition, it's sort of the folks that got out and elected Jesse Ventura, you know, governor of yes, Minnesota, yes. You know, all those years ago. So, you know, we need to make sure that you know, we're doing all the things, the fundamental things we need to do to make sure that our voters, um, the good Democratic voters, are, are understand the importance, uh, that they may not, for whatever reason, they may not love Hillary Clinton, but they can't sit this one out. We can, nobody can afford to sit this one out. We really need to make sure everybody shows up and does their part. And you make an excellent point. It, it, uh, a great deal of uh, Trump's appeal uh, is to those who don't usually vote. So if they suddenly show up, there's a whole block of voters that we're not used to uh, expecting or competing with at the polls. So I think that's an excellent point um, and, and, and good to be made. Let's talk about the future. <laughs> sure. As if the presidential campaign is not about that. But I mean, I, I, I see such things as uh, students, um, university students. I mean, I think even the president has said that he and the first lady are still paying off their student loans. I mean, I just, I can't imagine. It's not that we were extremely wealthy family. It's that tuition when I went to uh, university uh, was, uh, it must have been a lot less because I don't, I know I'm not still paying it off. So what has happened? Now, when people ask me that, just so you can agree or disagree or correct as you wish, Marcus, when people ask me what's going on with student loans, they complain about the educational system or the university or whatever. And my response to that sometimes is a little snappy. It's not, unless you get a grant or a scholarship, it's not the university that's putting you in debt, except if they recommend specific banks that you go to. It's the banking system that has, in my opinion, uh, discovered, oh my God, look how we can make money in the same way uh, that they discovered, oh, look how we can uh, nearly destroy the international global uh, economy, but we could still make a lot of money and stay out of jail. Now, I know those are strong words. I, I'm just throwing it out there, and you can respond any way you wish. What can we do, and what's at the root of the problem of the student loan debt crisis? What's what's causing it, and what, how can we fix it? So the, the fact is that we have $1.3 trillion and growing uh, and student loan debt outstanding nationwide. Wow. It is now a second to mortgage debt uh, only in the amount of uh, indebtedness. And, and unfortunately, this is frequently unsecured, so there's no asset behind mm -hmm. it. So it's, it's you know, $1.3 trillion just out there. Uh, and Virginia has over $300 million of that right here in Virginia. Most folks who graduate from UVA or William & Mary and get a four-year degree, go on to, to graduate school, will probably you know, have made a good bet. They probably made a, decision, a good investment, uh, and the returns that they get uh, over their lifetime and higher income will help them deal with the student loan interest that they have to pay. Mm -hmm. The problem is from lenders who are targeting people 
you know, with a sales pitch that says, let's get you into college, not let's get you graduated, not, not yeah. get you something, let's get you into college, pay for it. We're, don't worry about paying for it now. We'll, we'll pay for it. You'll figure out how to pay for it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and enrolling them in degrees that may not have any upside, may not result in degree programs. You know, a lot of private universities selling these certificate programs that you know, the certificates are not worth the paper they're printed on. Mm. Meanwhile, you spend twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars to get the certificate if you complete the program. If they make the most, they get their money. They generally don't care about whether you complete the program or not. Mm. Uh, and that debt is guaranteed by the federal government, so the lender knows they're going to be paid uh, one way or the other. Mm. But the poor student has this debt that follows them around forever. They can't discharge it in bankruptcy, and they find themselves sort of stuck with it, regardless of whether you know, they're willing to pay it back. And that's one part of the problem that, that, that's driving this. And the other part of the problem is that uh, during the recession, anybody who fell on sort of hard times and maybe took advantage of an opportunity for a forbearance program or took advantage of a deferment may not have understood that that was, what was happening was they were basically borrowing their interest payments and adding that to the principle of their debt. Mm. Uh, and they locked themselves in at you know, double-digit interest rates. So while I may have a mortgage right now for 3.25%, you've got folks paying around 30 or 40 or $50,000 in student loan debt and paying 10 10.5% interest on it. So you know, one of the things I've proposed to try and help deal with that in Virginia would be to establish a Virginia student loan authority that would be charged with refinancing folks' existing student loan debt, mm. allow them to take advantage of market conditions. I mean, right now, the, the state of Virginia and municipalities can borrow money for almost nothing. Why not use that borrowing power and then pass that savings along to Virginia residents with student loan debt, let them refinance. Yes. Pay back every bit of what they owe, but do it at a reasonable market interest rate so that they're not saddled with it forever. And they can make payments with that includes some principal and, and will have it paid off in a reasonable amount of time. That is such a reasonable solution. That is, I hope that comes to pass. That is such a great idea. It's, it's to, wow. Okay. Recently, I, I don't know, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, especially about the nonviolent part, but I, I work with a number of organizations have been on the show who have been pushing in a lot of states that nonviolent felons, once they are former nonviolent felons, in other words, they've served their time, they've paid their debt to society, that then most assume they just come right back into society and they have the privileges of any citizen now that they've served their time. But in certain states, and Virginia is one of them, only the governor can say you are now an American citizen again with voting rights, etc. Governor Terry McAuliffe recently, by executive order, said, okay, all former nonviolent felons who have served their time and behaved themselves in jail, etc., may now have the privilege to vote. And then the Virginia Supreme Court reversed that and even said, even those who registered between the governor's pronouncement and the court's opinion had to be unregistered. Where are you on that, Marcus? So you've got that mostly right. You know, in Virginia, we don't have any process to automatically restore civil rights to, to felons, nonviolent or, or violent when they've completed their entire sentence. So when I say their entire sentence, I mean they're out of jail, they're off of supervised release, they've completed, successfully completed probation, they're done. Most states have a process where you get your civil rights restored, including your right to vote. In Virginia, we've had legislation 
several years in a row to allow uh, the requires actually a constitutional amendment to say that you know that nonviolent felons, uh, however the General Assembly defines nonviolent, mm-hmm. will have their civil rights restored automatically upon completion of their sentence. Yes. Uh, and Republicans haven't been interested in passing that. They said no, it's got to be on an individual basis. So the other thing we've done is, the, is Governor McDonnell, as well as Governor McAuliffe, a Republican and a Democrat. Yes. In, Every budget since I've been there have put more money into the office of the Secretary of the Commonwealth to take that individual step-by-step approach and increase positions and funding to review people's applications and get their rights restored in an expeditious manner. They've Mm -hmm. taken that money out of the budget every time. So finally, Governor McCollum said, enough's enough. You guys say you're serious about restoring the voting rights of nonviolent felons, but your actions don't back it up. So I'm going to take executive action, and I'm not even going to limit it to nonviolent felons. You know, the felons and felons, but once they've served their time, once they've completed their sentence, mm-hmm. they ought to be reintegrated into society. And so he, he issued a blanket order restoring the rights of all felons, 203,000 in Virginia, completed their entire sentence, including their supervised release. And if you read the Constitution, literally, there's no reason that the governor can't do that. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court, as much as admitted that, they essentially found the four and a four to three decision, so a very narrowly a small majority. Mm-hmm. They said that, you know, the, the language wasn't clear. I think it was clear. They said it wasn't clear, and in any event, no other governor's ever tried this before, so it must not be mm-hmm. legal yeah. because nobody else has ever tried it before. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I found their reasoning to be suspect. Yes. Um, and, and their decision to even grant, to, to, there's no victim in this. Uh, yeah, their, their decision to grant standing uh, a number of justices were pretty scathing dissents about that because it really was a departure there. Um, so what the governor's going to have to do is he's going to have to go back and issue 203,000 individualized restoration of rights orders. And he's going to start with the folks, as you mentioned before, the folks who had registered to vote and then had the Supreme Court take their, their right to vote back away from them. So that's going to be the first step. We'll be doing that on an individual basis. You know, all these folks that screamed that the real, their real objection to this was they included violent felons as well as nonviolent felons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to put them to the test this year because I'm going to introduce legislation again that makes it automatic for nonviolent felons if they support it this time. Uh, since they claim their objection was that we include violent felons as well. I tend to agree with the governor. I mean, I think the fact is that if somebody's safe enough to let out of prison and, and take off of supervised release and, and go about his business, they're safe enough to cast their vote as well. But, you know, if that's the distinction, we'll, we'll, we'll put that to the test. Exactly. You know, I couldn't agree more, and thank you for correcting whatever I didn't get correct. And I wonder now, I know I want to shift to ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. For those who think it's passed, well, it did pass. Signed into law by President Jimmy Carter in the 70s, I believe. But it has to be ratified by 38 states and I believe it has been ratified by 35 states. And again, for those who don't think women need a special amendment to be equal citizens with everyone else, they haven't heard what the late uh, Justice Scalia said. There is no protection for equal citizenship in the Constitution, the law of the land, for women. Or, or I believe he said regarding sex or gender. And also Justice uh, Ginsburg has come out, and of course they great buddies, but couldn't have been more different uh, politically and as a jurist. So 
what has happened in the history of the Commonwealth is that the Equal Rights Amendment has come up many times to be ratified, and initially it was the state Senate that wouldn't, and the House that, of Delegates that would, but most recently the state Senate is voting for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, but the House of Delegates cannot pass it. Why is that, Delegate Marcus Simon? So, yeah, the last three years, you know, the Virginia State Senate has successfully you know, passed resolutions to ratify uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, and it goes to the House Committee where it never gets a vote, and this is unfortunately what the, what the Speaker of the House has done with a lot of progressive legislation that's very popular among Virginians. I mean, I think most of Virginians support passage of the Equal Rights Amendment and believe that women and men should enjoy equal protection under the law, yes. uh, the same protections under the law. But there's a small group who are opposed to it on you know, political principle. And so the, uh, the Speaker assigns it to the House Privileges and Elections Committee, yes. Constitutional Amendments Subcommittee, where it goes and, and is is left in committee every year. So it never really gets, it gets a voice vote to leave it in uh, what they call laid on the table. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's how they avoid having to have their members you know, vote on this issue that uh, is an anathema to their base, but that most Virginians, a, strong, a, small, a large majority of Virginians uh, would like to see passed. You know, Virginia's own constitution you know, provides for equal protection regardless of, of sex. Uh, or gender. So you know, we already have it in, in, in our state constitution. You know, there's no reason other than the optics and, and the partisan politics that Virginia wouldn't be one of those states that should ratify the Equal Rights Amendment and, and you know, move it on towards passage and becoming the law of the land all over the country. But the politics in the, in the House of Delegates, you know, unfortunately, the House the Democrats are in a 66 to 34 minority here. So they've mm-hmm. got a near super majority and they control all the levers. Uh, and all the procedural pieces and aspects of it, and so they can take popular ideas like that and put them in a in a small dark room and, and never open the door for them. Yes, at this being able to place something pocketed in a uh, in a subcommittee and just walk away, because as you say, I I think I'd like to think that there are members uh, enough members even maybe that's too optimistic enough members in the House of Delegates that would at least want to vote on it. But Speaker Howell doesn't give them that opportunity. Well, this has been a magnificent conversation, and uh, I so appreciate uh, Delegate Marcus Simon being on our show today. Remember, he represents the 53rd District of the Commonwealth of Virginia in Richmond in the House of Delegates. And um, take us out, Marcus. What what do you want to leave us thinking today? What 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 do you need us to go out and do? One thing we haven't talked about a little bit, but it, I think makes all the difference on all these issues that we talked about, mm-hmm. is we have an opportunity coming up uh, in a couple of years to redistrict the Virginia again. Ah, yes. uh, part of the reason that I think the system, people feel like the system doesn't work, I think I think the Bernie Sanders voters, the Donald Trump voters, folks that, that have this earnest belief that the system is rigged mm-hmm. and that nothing matters, to some extent they're not wrong particularly when it comes to how we, we draw our districts and how we select our representatives. Yes. Uh, and that would allow somebody like Speaker Howell to get away with taking the Equal Rights Amendment and putting it off in a committee never to be heard from again. Because everybody in, in these so hyper-partisan, very, you know, with the assistance of computers, very specifically and scientifically drawn districts, uh, the only 
you know, people we have to answer to are the extreme fringes of your, your primary base. Uh, if we had a nonpartisan redistricting with competitive districts where folks were forced to answer to the general electorate every year, the system would work more like it's supposed to do. So, I, I, you know, I know that you know, folks like Dick Sattler say, well, it's good gerrymandering, you get to do it. Uh, I think that's wrong. I mean, yes. I think it, 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 the fact is we're all going to be better served if, if the public has confidence in the way that we're, our districts are selected, in the way that we're elected, that we're responsive, uh, and it's the will of the people, then I think you'd see far greater participation and enthusiasm and respect for the results yes. uh, than we see right now. And, and gerrymandering, as you say, everybody does it, but it's also linked to the census, yes? Once the count is done moving around people for racial reasons or whatever reasons, although I, I would say that in Virginia, North Carolina and other states are being caught and called on it, but still you're right. When, when, while the American public thinks any segment of the public feels the system is rigged, they're not going to come out and participate, and participation is essential. Well, I didn't mean to have the last word. I wanted you, you to, but, <laughs> but we, we agree. Uh, yes, fine. yes, and you inspire me, uh, Delegate Marcus B. Simon, uh, the Democratic member of the House of Delegates who represents Virginia's 53rd district, has been our guest today. We thank you so much, sir, for being on the show. We wish you all the best and that uh, people in Virginia and around the country will listen to you and um, and will follow your example. How's that? Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And, and if there's another chance to do it again, I'd love to join you again sometime. Okay. We'll see to that and make it happen. Thank you, sir. Bye now. Right. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Andy Film Minute. Back in 2005, Hustle and Flow hit the Sundance Film Festival and exploded into that year's must-see film in the mountains of Utah. However, the story unfolds a million miles away from that idle setting in the tough inner city of Memphis, Tennessee. But this is no shallow ghetto story. Yes, its central character is a pimp, but from the opening frame, we know that DJ, played with depth and nuance by Terrence Howard, has an intellectual core. We can't help but believe that, born in a different environment, he would have found success in any number of respectable fields. But in his real world, he must choose from the avenues available to him. And he must dream the impossible dream, a ticket out through his art. Fortunately, DJ has the magic to inspire a disparate group of friends to join in pursuing his dream to create a rap anthem. Will DJ, with a bunch of whores singing back up, a quirky white boy with recording skills, and a church-going family man ultimately succeed? Hustle and Flow is a gripping film about the American dream, full of complexity and a richness of vision that will burn its story and its song into that special corner where we hold the films we love. Hustle and Flow, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. America, being Olympic champions off the field.
Was I struck by a bolt of lightning speed, or did American women win as many Olympic victories as American men? And are many of those winning females closer in hue to that of an American president or king? Being champions of truth requires embracing all humans are created equal and that women have always been worthy of the gold of economic equality as well as our liberated vote of confidence for their excellence. For America comes from a better place than Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, and the Koch brothers. Where I come from, nobody knows. Where I am going, everything goes. The wind blows, the sea flows, but slithering down from an Abraham to a GOP walled-in small government is not the place of champions. Whether portrait of Jenny or Dorian Gray, we are anchored in a universal truth. All there is comes from a before place, light, sound, even the courage of a desert dancer. Big Bang or Garden, metaphorically, all roads lead to and from a life-emitting tree, emanating a myriad of branches beaming with endless possibilities, solidly rooted in the soil of the sum total of our origin. Thus, we are limited only by our words, thoughts, and deeds. Arguably, our greatest national self-inflicted wound, prejudicial education and income disparity and racial and gender discrimination, is the tremendous loss of the genius of the human resources of Native Americans, African Americans, and, of course, female Americans. I am man enough to yield to my wife's admonition, the Olympics only come every four years, and sacrifice my movie viewing to cast a glance or two toward our big screen when Michael Phelps appears to confirm, unlike the Donald, he, like Ali, is indeed the greatest of all time. However, in 2016, what most captivated my least sports-qualified spectator experience was the competing champions whose names I'd never heard. Kathleen Baker, Simone Biles, Gabby Douglas, Allison Felix, Lauren Hernandez, Gwen Jurgison, Lily King, Madison Koshian, Simone Manuel, Ali Ramsman, Dana Volner, and my all-time favorite, Katie Ledecky. Even more disturbing, the difficulty locating these female names in the online reporting during the televised Rio games. Of course, out of many won by its very non-Republican, all-inclusive dictum encompasses the potential of incorporating both the American dream and the American nightmare. For among us survives still a multi-layered spectrum evaluating and rewarding both our achievement highs and hypocritical lows. Truth is, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in a love-it-or-leave-it right-wing un-American activities overcome by overcombed cheerleaders lying to themselves philosophy. We are a nation that comes from someplace else, another time with another set of goals to reach, ideas to fulfill, and ideals to be. Even before our 233rd year of experimental existence, we torched both the New Deal and New Frontier and launched a new birth of, by, and for Wall Street greed. In truth, still bearing our wounds from Team Watergate, 
we come from a place of purple hearts and bronze stars and daily share the agony of gold star families we ascend from another place from philadelphia and valley forge through ellis island to san francisco and from exceptional expansionist exile imposed on native americans to enslaving people of color as young as five-year-old Amran Dagnish. America is also pieces of silver, black gold greed, and treasonous mushroom cloud deceit, as it is the forgotten women and men who bled the lyrics of the star-spangled banner, who saw the glory of the coming of the Lord over there, and who, over here, went beyond what trickles down from behind the wall, trumpeting the street of regression and recession. We were not always proven worthy of the gold medal or even brass ring, but we are the living, breathing descendants of hope, and like Malala, life's promise, knowing not only one child, one teacher, one book, and one pen, but one vote can change the world. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.